0: Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. Great to have us all together. Now, today's Palm Sunday has nothing to do with your palms. Um, you may wonder why we call it Palm Sunday. If you grew up in Sunday school like I did and Mike Keller did, you had a palm branch you might bring, right? And the palms were to celebrate the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. And As a kid, you didn't really know, or I didn't. Maybe you did. Maybe you're smarter than me. And I just knew this was the week before Easter, which meant a couple of things. We were going shopping for little pastel-colored colored clothes, right? We were going we to dye some eggs and we're going to have some candy. Praise God, right? It was going to be, that's what it meant. I mean, I knew that Jesus died on the cross and all that, but that's kind of, as a kid, it's Palm Sunday. Well, what are we actually doing? Well, today, we're going to look at Palm Sunday. Because Palm Sunday, when you combine it with Good Friday and Monday, Thursday, it's, it's a kind of a dichotomy, right? Because something happens between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. There's something that happens that really totally changes the people to move from praise you, Jesus, to crucify him, to crucify him. See, Palm Sunday begins to build an expectation. And I, I remember when I came to Florida for the first time, we moved here in 1987 when I was six, probably. No, in 1987, um, Julie and I got married, we moved out here a year, or a year later, took a job and sales, and a few months after we arrived, my boss hosted a dinner for us in Miami, which was crazy for a boy from, from the Midwest who lived in Texas, now we're in Miami, and he took us to a Cuban restaurant. Now, my expectation was Cuban food would be like Mexican food. And so growing up, I haven't spent a lot of time in Texas. I love the spicy pop of salsa and the, the flavors that are so, so, you know, robust in Texas. I thought, this is what it's going to be. And I come into this restaurant thinking, where's the salsa? Where's the chips? What are these slivers of bananas? <laughs> Nobody eats a banana that way. What are we doing here? And then the food comes out and it's this, it's this, this piece of meat that someone's beat the tar out of. It's about this thick. And I just didn't get it at all. I thought, this is awful. I would really love some fajitas. There's no tortillas. What are we doing here? Did Cuba miss the whole Mexican thing? This is when you're just kind of ignorant, honestly. But because my expectation was for something bold, spicy, over the top, and I got something subtle, I missed it completely." So your expectation can really drive how you receive Jesus. Now, uh, thankfully, a few years later, somebody reintroduced me to Cuban food, and it's awesome with the salt of the garlic and the lime and the onions and, ooh, Cuban cafe after we're done? I think that's where we need to go. Um, you find out it's amazing, but your expectation can cause you to miss it completely. A lot of people today in our culture, especially in the West, are deconstructing their faith. At least partially because Jesus didn't turn out to be what they expected or what they were sold. They thought that Jesus would be something different. Kirsten Sanders in Christianity Today defines this idea of deconstruction this way. Next slide. There we go. Oh, oh, I'll just read it to you. Deconstruction, this is a simple phrase. There we go. It's the struggle to correct or deepen naive belief. It's the struggle to correct or deepen naive belief. It's that time of, of doubt that happens in every believer's life that says, what, what does Jesus really mean? What's the core of it? What is it really all about? I, there's so many things I've heard, and there's so many different, different aspects. Of what is the core of it? And actually, deconstruction, if done among someone who can help guide you, can be really helpful. See, Jesus can stand the scrutiny, amen, because he's real. He's real. A lot of people are getting discouraged. Because what they were maybe told Jesus was supposed to be is not who he actually is. So today, we want to get a really good idea of who Jesus is as he makes this entrance into Jerusalem. So look with me in Luke chapter 19. We're taking a break from Acts, but it's our same author, Luke. Luke chapter 19, verses uh, 28 through 40 is what we'll look at. And then we'll go a little later. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's, he's done incredible miracles, right? At this point, Jesus has done what? He's fed thousands with a small lunch. He's healed people. He's driven out demons. He's controlled the weather. He's even raised people from the dead. In fact, in John's account, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and he comes with, Jerus- with Lazarus to Jerusalem. And there's a plot, actually, to kill Lazarus, because they don't want people to know that Jesus actually raised him from the dead. They want to go ahead and put him in the grave again, maybe, so Jesus could raise him again. I'm not really sure, but that was kind of the strategy. Um, and now Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and he, he tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to suffer, and he tells them the whole story, and I, don't, I just think they quit listening at that point. That doesn't make any sense. You ever do that? I know we husbands do that at times. We're like, I don't understand that. Let's just move on, honey. We're going on vacation. Oh, we're going to go see people that you want to see. I forgot that part. I thought we were going fishing, right? I mean, that's we kind of missed that. And I think they kind of just didn't hear that part. We're going to Jerusalem, and we're going to take over. Somehow that's what they heard. So this is Jesus setting up his arrival, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is on a hill, so it doesn't matter which direction you're coming from. You're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on it, on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now get this picture. See nothing really happens with Jesus that's just random, right? He's got a plan. And he's going to Jerusalem and he wants to make a specific kind of entrance. Entrances matter, don't they? First dates, first day after you get married, first day on the job, you want it to go really well, don't you? Remember my first job right out of college down in Houston, Texas. I show up, I'm I'm dressed sharp, I'm sitting around a table with 20 other new hire engineers. We're all drinking coffee, thinking we're cool. You know, we're all sharing where we went to school. One guy says, I went to Texas A&M. And that guy said, I went to the University of Texas. Another guy, University of Oklahoma. And it came to me, and I'm holding a cup of coffee. And I said, I went to the University of Missouri Rolla. And I dumped coffee all down my lap, completely drenched in coffee. So you know what I did? First day, trying to make a good impression, I just melted into tears. No, I didn't. <laughs> you knew that wasn't true, right? You know, I thought, you know, I still want to make a good impression because engineers have to overcome adversity, right? We have to know how to think on our feet. I just got up, I just walked out, and I walked out, outside to my car, my horrible 1971 Ford Maverick, where I had everything I owned in the world, and I got some clothes, I got in the car, I changed, and I walked in like nothing happened. I wanted to prove to them, I'm going to be able to handle whatever comes my way. Your entrance matters. I was walking last night, and at the end of our street, some kind of motorcade went by. There was like five or six police officers on uh, motorcycles. Behind them, there was some other flashing lights, and then there was Kenny G's bus, or somebody, I don't know who. I heard Kenny G was in town last night, so I don't know. How many went to see Kenny G last night? Anyone? Admit it. Men, <laughs> you should admit it. And I'm proud of you if you don't know who he is. Anyway. But when a motorcade arrives, it's because someone important is showing up. You know, the president travels with 50 vehicles. 50. 50 vehicles. Because they, they have all the security. They want to present to the world this is an unstoppable force. Don't even try to mess with us. I love that. I think that's great. He actually has two limousines, and no one knows which ones he's in except for the Secret Service. It's a $1.5 million limousine that has all kinds of security features. It's more like a rolling tank. But when he arrives, this is the president. There's no question who this is, and there's no question he's a very powerful man. This is the president. But when Jesus arrives, he doesn't show up in a motorcade. He shows up in a Toyota Corolla, essentially. Nothing against Toyota Corollas. They're good cars, right? Nothing against that. But if a Toyota Corolla rolls up, you're not thinking it's the king of the world. He intentionally is humble. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a football team showing up on Sunday Sunday. And instead of wearing all their clothes and all their their helmets and their their pads and their gear and just charging out into the field, it's like they showed up in in shorts and a t-shirt and just kind of stroll in. Hey, I guess we're here. See, Jesus does something really amazing right here. When he could have ridden a white stallion, like a conquering king, and and he could have had an army come along beside him. He could have arrived in power. He didn't. He... Arrived humbly as a servant. Look at Philippians chapter 2 as Paul describes what Jesus did when he came in. And I love, you could, I could talk about Philippians 2 all day for the next month. It's such a powerful passage. But verses 5 through 8 say this Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to, verse 7. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The king of the universe, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus laid aside his rights. He intentionally laid aside his power. It didn't make him any less powerful, but he comes as a servant. He comes saying, I'm coming to bless you. I'm coming to do for you what no one else could do. I'm not coming to force my way into your life. I'm not coming to dominate the Romans. I'm coming as a servant. I'm coming humbly, even though I don't have to. And the people are excited back to Luke chapter 19 verse 36 Luke chapter 19 verse 36 one more verse 36 and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road and as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Here's what's happening. Jesus is coming into this city, and most of those with him were probably pretty loyal to him. They're pretty excited about him because they're they're most likely pilgrims who have come from outside of Jerusalem. Probably many from Galilee, some 60 or 70, 80 miles away, where Jesus had had most most of his ministry. And these are people who have experienced his miracles. They've heard him teach. They've heard him preach. They've seen him heal. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him do all of these things. And so they're excited. And they say, Jesus, coming into Jerusalem at Passover. And they're shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. We're excited. This is thrilling. We're all, something's going to happen now. But there's a little different expectation here. And we need to give them credit because they knew the predictions about a Messiah. They knew that there was going to be coming this great king. But when, they say, when you say great king to them, they saw King David. They saw the most amazing general ever, general and king leading their country. And they thought it was going to bring them back to being the most awesome nation in the world. For them to have power and influence and wealth. That things were going to be great from now on. That's what they saw in Jesus. And we shouldn't blame them for this because no one understood who Jesus really was at that point. But they're shouting, We're excited, Jesus, you're coming. They're worshiping him. They know that they need rescue. And Jesus is coming into the land and into Jerusalem. But something happens. Five days later, they're screaming, Crucified. Something happens that from the time Jesus comes into the city with great accolades to the time he is on trial, the people, or at least some of the people, or at least the people with the loudest voices are shouting, crucify him. How does this happen? Well, several things are going on. First of all, you have the people who are coming from outside the city who are probably pro-Jesus while the people inside the city are not pro-Jesus. They're under the reign of the Pharisees and under the reign of the chief priests, and they've, kind of, they've been against Jesus all along. But still, something happens that there is no voice to save Jesus. It's all crucify Jesus. Well, During Passion Week, a lot of things happen. In those five days, Jesus weeps over the city because he knows the city is not going to get it. Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple. Jesus tells stories about the parables that they were basically put in charge of a vineyard. And then they, when, the, when the owner of the vineyard came to collect, they beat the, the collector. And matter of fact, he sends his son and they kill him outside the city. And Jesus and the Pharisees know that they're talking about him and they're furious with Jesus. But, you know, probably more than anything. What happened during those five days is Jesus did not take over. He did not say, I'm coming to rescue you from the Romans. As a matter of fact, he warned them that the temple would be torn down, there wouldn't be one stone on top of another, and that Jerusalem would be overrun. This is not the Messiah we were hoping for. And so when the Pharisees began to incite the people against Jesus, it makes sense that, they're well, this can't be the Messiah because he would restore Jerusalem. And so they're disappointed with who Jesus turns out to be, so it's not that hard for the Pharisees to turn them against Jesus. Luke chapter twenty-three, Luke chapter twenty-three, beginning in verse one. This is Jesus on trial. It says when the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And this would have been the Pharisees. The chief priests, would have been some of the people, and they began to accuse him, saying, "We found this man. Get this." misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. This is the people who are against Jesus. They're trying to get him killed. They can't stand him. They, he's, he's threatening, get this, he's threatening the Pharisees' position. When you think about who Jesus is, Does he threaten your position? If you were to follow Jesus completely today, do you worry that it might threaten your position, threaten your income, threaten your influence? Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, yes, you have said so. Next verse. Then in verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection Started in the city and for murder. Now just stop for a moment. I so don't want Jesus to live. I'd rather have a murderer. I so don't want this Jesus to be pretending to be Messiah anymore that I would would rather have a murderer released around me. That's how much they hated Jesus. Next verse. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with the loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices, their voices prevailed. What a scene. Why did they want Jesus to die? Why did they want Jesus? Why did they want to kill him? He just wasn't the Jesus that they were expecting. And they couldn't understand or believe or accept that he was there to pay the price for them, to be their servant. They couldn't accept that about him. They, they couldn't accept that when the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, you're the king, you're our Messiah. The Pharisees couldn't accept that. They said, Jesus, tell him to be quiet. Have you ever told him to be quiet? When you're worshiping Jesus. Sometimes us church people can say, wait a minute, you know, don't get too out of, too out of control here. But don't this worship Jesus to get too out of control. No, listen, we want it to get out of control. We want Jesus to be glorified and worshiped. That's why we are all about making Jesus, knowing to connect people to Jesus. And here we are, just five days after the worship of Jesus, where we're crying, Then they've incited the people to yell, crucify Him. Crucify Him. I love Pastor Kevin DeYoung's description of this uh, in Gospel Coalition in December. He says this, he says, In a nutshell, that's why the Jewish leaders, religious and political, and later some of the crowd they incited, hated Jesus. Jealousy was no doubt a part of it, but deeper than that, they simply did not have the eyes to see or the faith to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. To see Jesus as Christ, as the Rescuer, as the Messiah, as the King, you have to have the eyes to see that you have incredible need of Him. You see, Jesus came to save souls, not to save lives. Jesus came to save souls, not to save lives. And they were expecting Him to come and give them a better life, to give them a more happy life, to give them a more influential life, to give them a less painful life, to get them a more influential life. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. But Jesus said, I need to save your soul. They wanted the stamp of approval. They wanted validation. They wanted power. They wanted Him to to bring bring back King David times. They wanted that to be amazing. But Jesus said, "I, I need to save your soul." Jesus didn't come to give you a better life. He came to save your soul. say, well, Steve, wait a minute. I I thought Jesus came to give me life and to give it more abundantly. And that's what it says in the book of John. Yes, it does. Well, let me tell you this. When Jesus comes into your life, His Spirit comes with it. And you do have an amazing life. But I wouldn't trade my life for... Mansions on the beach, houses in Colorado, and a jet to connect the two, you know? I I wouldn't, because to follow Jesus is the most exciting, thrilling, awesome, amazing life, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to be wealthy. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be healthy. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be powerful, and sadly, it doesn't mean that I'm going to be good-looking, amen? Some of you, some of you have overcome that. Praise God for that. Appreciate that, and ladies, you look great today. Um, guys, you're still ugly. Um, that's true, isn't it? Um, there's nothing more meaningful than helping other people's soul be saved. right There's nothing more exciting than that, but let me tell you, it's painful. It's difficult. but you know what? Everything that we do that's worth anything is, right? You want to get in shape? it's going to be painful. You want to be successful, you have to work hard. Everything that we do is painful if it really matters, and following Jesus is absolutely worth it. It's absolutely thrilling, but it's not easy. It is life more abundantly, and we look for another life more abundantly after death as well. Jesus didn't come to save your life. He came to save your soul. You say, well, Steve, what about, isn't, aren't I supposed to be praying for those things? Shouldn't I be praying for my friends? Shouldn't I be praying for my business to be successful? Yes, if your business being successful, it's going to result in Jesus being glorified and most souls knowing Jesus. You follow me? I say, well, I, I just want to have more stuff. Well, that's really not Jesus' thing because Jesus died penniless. His goal is not to make you wealthy. His goal is to save souls. Well, shouldn't I be praying for people who are sick? Yes, if your goal is that Jesus would be glorified and that more people would understand that Jesus came to save souls. We do pray for health. We do pray for success. But only in light of the kingdom of Jesus. Because know this, that the more comfortable you are, the less you need Jesus most of the time. You know, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy as long as your goal is with that wealth to bring glory to Jesus so more souls can be saved. You say, well, Steve, I don't know. I mean, I, I struggle with this idea that I needed my soul to be saved. I really just wanted my life to get better. Let me tell you, your soul needs to be saved because you have broken God's law. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You have abused his Sabbath and not rested appropriately to bring him glory one day out of seven. You have been angry enough to kill somebody. You may not have done it. Hopefully you didn't. If you you didn't, you need to turn yourself in. But uh, you've been mad enough. A lot of anger is murderous. You have stolen, even if it's something very small. You have lied. Not told the truth. You have broken God's law human sexuality where it belongs in the context only of a committed marriage between one man and one woman. You, and even in your thought process, have broken God's sexual law. You have wanted things that don't belong to you, and you've resented those who have them. That's just six out of ten commandments. See, we all stand condemned before God. We all stand condemned Guilty of a fine we could never pay. But Jesus came to pay that fine. Jesus came to save our souls, not to give us a better life. Sometimes we can be like the survivors of the Titanic, riding on the deck of the Carpathia, which is the saving vessel, and we're complaining about the temperature of the hot chocolate. You know what I mean? God, you saved me from certain death. But man, I don't know, but this Carpathia is not quite as fast as I hope it was. This hot chocolate's not hot enough. That's not true if you really understand that Jesus saved you from certain permanent, eternal punishment and death. Jesus came to save souls, not to save lives. Would you bow with me?